Good evening. Um, it is a pleasure to be here. I want to thank again Steve and Ruth, who I'm getting to know and really enjoying getting to know, and so many of you. Um, you mentioned Joy. Uh, I just talked to her about 10 minutes ago. Um, part of what I'm trying to speak about in these days is changing the narrative. Um, the sentence I said this morning that outlines what I'm saying in these lectures is really one sentence. If you get that, I'll be happy. That what's at stake in this country are two things. The soul of the nation, the soul of this nation, and secondly, the integrity of faith. Now, Joy, because she was one of the first women ordained Church of England, uh, Joy is one of those narrative changers. And I'll tell you a quick story I just recalled as you were mentioning Joy. We met at this big festival in the UK called Greenbelt, and it's a music, arts, discipleship festival, Christian. Bono cut his teeth there. Um, and I would often go over there to speak, and so we met over there, and, and then after we got married, uh, we went back one year to both speak again, she was a speaker. I met her on a panel. She's uh, on the board there. And so she was celebrating the Eucharist for 25,000 British young people. And my son, our son Luke, who's now in college and 20 years old, was sitting on my lap as a four-year-old. And he's watching his mom up there, and uh, she's saying, the Lord be with you, and they say it back, and also with you. And whatever she tells them to do, they all do. And he's watching all this, and he says, Dad, can men do that too? <laughs> so we're changing the narrative. And what is at stake in this narrative changing is, in fact, the nation's soul. And whether people think that we as people of faith had any relevance at all, to what's going on right now, including the first time in my life, and I've been around for a while, the future of democracy itself. So this is a little more informal than this morning, so we'll have a chance. I'll say some things, and we can talk together back and forth. <clears throat> I thought I would get personal here at first. Um, in the first six months of 2017, I was waking up in the morning uh, at 4.30 or 5 a.m. and couldn't get back to sleep. There were so many astonishing and alarming events or things being said nearly every day. I was being flooded with calls from friends and uh, leaders from various sectors, pastors, I remember a college president called and said, who's normally very cheery, and he was very distressed. He said, I, things happen every day that, I, that affect my university. I, I don't know what to do. Every day, things happen now. A senator called and said, Jim, I don't know what to fight. There's so many things to fight. What do I fight? Then a, a, a bishop called 
from one of our churches whom you would know, and he says, I'm just reacting all the time. Reacting, immigration, refugees. I'm just reacting. How do we act again? How do we assert our faith? Unable to rest in those early hours of the day, I began to go downstairs just to be alone and to think, pray, and read the scriptures. I wondered what to read. And so, of course, I love the Gospels. You heard that this morning with my Matthew 25 sermon of my conversion text. But I almost didn't want to read the Gospels because every time I read them, we were so far away from what the Gospels were saying or what the churches were saying in this crisis. I love the prophets, but again, I wasn't hearing any prophetic voices. So it's discouraging to read the prophets. Finally, I thought, I'd like to go back to Acts and see what the early believers did in their crisis, trying to present this person of Jesus in a society full of political injustice and religious corruption. So I went back, and you know how it is when you, when you go back to scriptures, even those you've read many times, but you go back there with new questions. There's always new things for you in those scriptures. So here, early in Acts, here's the, of course, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples who are hiding up in this room, afraid to come out, and yet the events of Pentecost overcame their fears, empowering them to come and bring their message of Jesus to the streets, the public square. These converts who at that time were called um, believers of the way, the way, this whole new way of life, uh, they were called to a new life together and they settled in, they experienced a deep fellowship together, a radical economic sharing great joy in a transforming worship in a community that was literally a diverse community of rich and poor, men and women, old and young, even free and slave in that early community. And so Peter quotes the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy your Young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even upon slaves, both men and women, in these days I'll pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy. Something clearly new was happening. And Peter is very clear, this disciple who doubted Jesus historically and famously and then just completely doubted himself, found his voice and he says, you who... We call, you have, you have killed this man we call Jesus, been freed from death, and now his name we proclaim to you. So I went on reading, and I noticed that everything the disciples did, every time they, they healed, every time they taught, every time they preached, everything they did was in the name of Jesus. Everything. And I had never noticed that so much before. 
So here they are with a, uh, a disabled beggar outside the city gate. They heal him, and Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. The people were filled with wonder and amazement. They kept preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. 3,000 one day came for 5,000 another day. And it says, the authorities were annoyed. That's the word, annoyed. So they arrested these first disciples, held them overnight, and they inquired of them, by what power, by what name do you do this? And Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit, the text says, addressed the rulers of the people and elders of the people, telling them that this man they saw before them was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This stone that was rejected by you has become the chief cornerstone. The story goes on that these rulers saw the boldness, the text says, of these uneducated and ordinary men. That's what the text says. They're amazed by them and recognize they were followers of this man, Jesus. So they got rid of them and together discussed the problem. What shall we do with them? They asked each other. They couldn't deny what was happening, but they wanted, it says, to keep it from spreading further among the people. Keep this thing from spreading further. So let us warn them to speak no more to anyone. In this name. Brought them back in. And ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They didn't seem nervous about these ordinary uneducated disciples. They're worried about this name. After threatening them. They said, don't speak in that name anymore. And so Peter said, how can we not speak? When we've heard and seen so much, how can we not speak in that name? We've seen and heard so much, we, we cannot do that. Whether it's right in God's sight to listen to you or speak, to, or rather to God, we must judge, but you must judge, but we cannot keep from speaking of what we have seen and heard. That's always the question for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. How can we not speak out after what we have seen and heard? Or have we forgotten what we have seen and heard or in our churches, did we ever even hear the things that Jesus said and did while he was on this earth? Have we ever heard about those things even in our churches? Everything was said and done. In his name, this wasn't sort of said and done in the names of new celebrity religious leaders. Establishing their own faith-based organizations. 
competing for funding, space, press coverage. No, it was all done in Jesus' name. And the authorities, religious and political, began to realize that this name, the name of Jesus, could become a threat to them. The Acts reading struck me deeply every morning and prompted me to ask, where is the name of Jesus today? Where are the people speaking to our growing moral and political crisis in Jesus' name? Or has Jesus' name been forgotten, silenced, co-opted, even hijacked by the powers that be? How might Jesus be named again today? in opposition or resistance to the dangerous values and behaviors and policies that we were seeing, along with the attacks on so many vulnerable people of whom we spoke this morning in this church. Where do we look for Jesus' name? In the public square or even in our churches, when the loudest voices religiously are ignoring all of those things, are speaking in support of those things, and the rest of the church seems quite silent. Where is Jesus' name? Those calls kept coming, and one of them by a church leader asked this question. Is this a Bonhoeffer moment? Is this a moment that recalls the brilliant young German pastor in the 1930s who was a founder of what became called the Confessing Church? I began to give that a lot of reflection. Now, let me be clear. Easy or simplistic historical parallels are never helpful. History, as some have said, doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. Strong men leaders are appearing now in many countries, not just ours, all over the world. And those leaders with autocratic tendencies are seldom the cause of what they create, but they are rather the consequence of cultural, political, and moral situations that have been unfolding or unraveling for a long time. These allegedly populist but truly authoritarian leaders can lead the people, their people and nations to many different outcomes, different outcomes in different places depending on their own circumstances, limitations, resistance, and possibilities. And critically, I would suggest one of the most important limitations or possibilities 
is the response of faith communities to these strong men and their values. I think Bonhoeffer comes into our present situation with the most important question he asked. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christians should always ask this question. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? Who is Jesus Christ for us right now today? That's the urgent question for us to ask right now. And what could be our Bonhoeffer moment? So these issues, you're right, I just have finished this book. It was really the end of the sermon today. I, I named what it was. It's called Reclaiming Jesus. Assuming that Jesus needs to be reclaimed in our moment and that Jesus is worth reclaiming. What does that mean for us now? What does it mean to be followers of Jesus now? I feel, and you can tell me if you feel it too when we talk together here in a few minutes, a great hunger for this idea of going back to Jesus. I feel that among all the the kids I talk to around the country who are in this new category, they check their affiliation, you know, religiously, and they check none of the above. These are the nuns. I mean, the, the new nuns. I like the old nuns, too. But that when I would go out and speak all the time when I was young, evangelical, these evangelical Christian colleges, I'd go walk into the auditorium, and there'd be two rows of Catholic sisters, always, in the front row. And I'd say, sisters, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're local. I said, well, I figured that. But why are you here? Well, Jim, this is a very conservative place. I'd say, yeah, that's kind of why I came. Uh, they said, we thought somebody should have your back. <laughs> I've had nuns as bodyguards for years. So I love the nuns. But these N-O-N-E-S nuns, most of them, vast majority, believe in God. They just don't want to affiliate with us in the churches. What we've said and done or not said and done. But this brown Jewish rabbi of Palestinian heritage has their attention. They kind of like him. And they're looking for who would be willing to talk about him. This moment is a crisis moment, but it could cause us to go deeper. Maybe. Could cause us to go deeper. How do we respond and not just react? I'll testify that reacting to all these things each and every day, all day, is utterly exhausting. I see heads nodding. It is exhausting, and I think it's part of the strategy to exhaust us. How do we respond 
and not just react? How do we do that out of a deeper place than just political polarization? How do we go deeper than politics? This won't be just solved by politics. This may be a new era in American history, but it's not a new era in human history. From the Roman Empire to Nazi Germany to the Soviet system to apartheid in South Africa to dictatorial regimes and on every continent and every time, history has demonstrated that the only reality feared by the strong men as a legitimate threat to their control is the name of the only rival who can ultimately contend against them. They're always afraid of him and those who would name his name. Even when Christian culture is so compromised by conformity to the values and powers of this world, we can never quite get shed of Jesus. He has a really good record on comebacks. <laughs> time and time again. So actually, in this book I just in fact finished, I found a way in the whole book not to name the name of the one who lives in my city who loves to be named all the time never mentioning his name, but rather calling for service and faithfulness to his only true threat, the one whose name will be mentioned over and over and over again. Let me add one thing to that that I'd like to hear from you. I, I do want this to be a, these dill lectures uh, a back and forth, and I had a good chance to talk to some young clergy in this room, uh, Mulder Racial, women and men, over lunch, and something came up there that I thought I would like to speak to and end on right now, which is, he said, what do you think of this word, this, this word, this, this evangelical <laughs> Evangelical, it just evokes all these things. I come from that background, right? I said that this morning. Um, it's a word that must be de defined now very carefully by answering the question, what is the good news? What is the good news? What is the good news we're offering? Uh, what do we mean by this word evangelical? The word has its origin in the scriptures, in the word evangel, from Luke 4.16, which was Jesus' first gig, his first speech, first time he opened his mouth in public in his ministry, announcing this new kingdom of God. At Nazareth, I call this his Nazareth Manifesto. 
And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah, because he has anointed me to bring good news. The word there is evangel. Good news to the poor. To proclaim released captives, recovery of sight, the blind, to set at liberty those who've been oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord, which is, you know, who are scholars, that year is the year of Jubilee, which changes everything, socioeconomically changes things. That was his first gig, his press conference, his opening statement. That understanding of that evangel from which we get evangelicalism evangelism, that meaning of the word there is hardly the word anybody would think of when asking what evangelicals stand for today. So the way the country views evangelicals is quite different than that. Because the country sees this, and it happened last week in the press coverage of the Supreme Court nomination. What the evangelicals think is this. But that never feels like good news to those who are poor, immigrants, refugees, racial minorities, women, other vulnerable people for whom support of evangelicals and what they're seemingly for feels like very bad news. Because the word evangelicals in this nation, in our narrative, really means white evangelicals. The operative word in the phrase white evangelical or even white Christian is neither evangelical nor Christian. The operative word is white. So our definitions have to be clarified in terms of who we are, in fact, talking about. The Reclaiming Jesus Declaration put out by 22 church elders at Pentecost Quotes Genesis 1.26, we believe every human being is made in God's image and likeness. Therefore, racial bigotry is a brutal denial of the image of God. It's a throwing away of Imago Dei. Throwing it away. Just throwing it away. In some of the children of God. This is a matter of faith and not just politics. And then all the white evangelicals say to the evangelicals of color, well, we're not for the bigotry. No, we're not for that. It's we did what we did because of other issues. To which evangelicals of color say in response. So racial bigotry just isn't a deal breaker for you, I guess. Racial bigotry is a deal breaker for the gospel. For Genesis chapter 1. And for John chapter 1, when John introduced Jesus Christ to the world by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Genesis says, let us 
make them in our own image and likeness. This is about the good news of Jesus, which we're so, so hungry for. So I believe there's a hunger for the good news. I believe it's out there. I feel it. We did a video about this declaration, and within two weeks, it was seen by five million people, some of whom never go to church, but they like this good news. So I think we're at a moment where the soul of the nation is at stake and the integrity of faith will be judged. So this is a great danger, but a great opportunity. And that's what I want to share with you in these Dill lectures. What's the good news? Are we a part of that? In whose name do we speak? And what does that Now, as I promised, we're going to have some time to talk together. I don't want to speak for an hour, so Oprah Winfrey right here has a microphone. <laughs> and he is going to uh, take it around. And as, as uh, Oprah often says, um, the thing about a question is that it's a question <laughs> as opposed to a sermon. So if you have a question... I would love to hear it, and let's talk together. And I don't see a clock, so I will ask Reverend Dr. Oprah to, uh, to go on until we, we have time. So please, and I, tonight especially, this will be the, probably the most intimate grouping we have, so it's a chance to talk back and forth a bit. So please, your questions, comments, uh, concerns. And we would ask that you allow me to get to you with the mic before asking the question so everyone can hear the question, okay? All right. Raise your hands. Don't be shy. So forgive me if I'm not very eloquent in this question, but... You were talking about deal breaker things in politics. So we have these politicians who come up and they, they say things that, as a Christian, are deal breakers. But then they also have, for instance, maybe their stand on abortion is their pro-abortion, but then they have these other social justice things that are, are also deal breakers. But I don't, have, I don't have the perfect candidate. I've got to pick somebody and it just seems like at some point, I kind of just want to say, forget it, I'm voting for no one because they're all terrible. And nobody has the, nobody seems to be standing up for Christian values across the board. So what do we do with that when we're, we're faced with, we want to be politically active, but we also, it seems like everybody has a deal breaker. I don't see any candidates that I can feel good about saying, yeah, I picked that guy. How many of you sometimes feel politically homeless? Look at this. It could be a new party. No, not a new party. 
There is another way. I, I really feel that our political polarization, while it's being driven and led and pushed every single day uh, by, by one party, the other party is also responsible for a good deal of this, particularly because of its selection of issues and people who are important. For example, I don't want to go into this tonight in, in depth, but uh, this morning, those of us that were in this church, we talked about how I think Matthew 25, which is the text that brought me back to Christ after being pushed out of my church at 15 in Detroit over the issue of race, it's brought me back because Jesus is saying, um, I call it the uh, it was me text. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was sick. I was a stranger. And the way you treat those marginal, vulnerable people is the way you treat me. And my section in this book on abortion, you raise that, is in that chapter. In that chapter. The left and the right do not acknowledge what for us is the heart of political matters, vulnerability. We are going to be tested, the prophets say, all of us, all leaders, rulers, nations. The text in Matthew is about nations, not just individuals. Tested by how we treat those who are most vulnerable. That's the test. Now, if you're a woman who has an unwanted pregnancy, you are overwhelmingly lower income, you're 86% usually not married on your own, and you have an unwanted pregnancy. And the right doesn't see the vulnerability of that. Almost, they just don't see that. You can't get them to deal with the vulnerability of women. But often the left, they don't see the vulnerability. I was at lunch today with a what, six months old, she is a little child? Any parent knows how vulnerable this growing potential, there are different theologies of when life begins, different, but this is a potential life that's growing, and every parent knows how vulnerable that life is. You've got two lives, both very vulnerable, and I never hear that conversation around the issue of abortion. Are there issues, that, that issue and, of course, the other ones that are so popular, are there issues that we could even find some better way, different way to help people talk about these things that are so polarized with the selection? Cardinal Bernardin, some of you might know from Chicago. I see the people with collars here probably know who he was, my favorite cardinal in Chicago. I was his token Protestant teacher for his priests. Uh, he called for a consistent ethic of life. You're referring to Catholic social teaching. He called a seamless garment of life. And that consistent ethic of life is not present in politics whatsoever. And so, no, there, there, are, there are people, there are people, I just met the mayor tonight, thanks for coming. There are mayors in this country that I talk to about these things. There are members of Congress, a few senators, who privately want to talk about these things. Uh, but who are stuck in political 
straitjackets and shadows, shackles and don't know how to break out of them. So a movement that is trying to reclaim Jesus might have a chance to speak on behalf of those vulnerable women and those vulnerable lives that are growing inside of them. Now, we're not going to discuss or resolve that tonight, but the other issues about sexuality also deserve that same kind of attention. The heart of it to me is, well, the heart of it to the Jesus I follow that brought me back to Christ was how you treat the vulnerable is how you treat me. And the politics in this country, all of the importance, all of the power, all of the influence is with people at the top. Both parties are like that. The people at the bottom are not important in politics. But here's the problem. Jesus says, that's where I am. That's where you find me. How you treat them is how you treat me. I had never found anything that radical after my years in the radical student movement. But here's the Son of God saying, here are the people you pay no attention to, you forget, they're forgotten, they're marginal, you don't even think about them. And he's saying, how you treat them is how you treat the Son of God. That radical thing brought me back to Christ, my conversion text. And that conversation, I think, can occur if we can get beyond some of this polarization. But I can't tell you, I can tell you, I wouldn't tell you, but I could tell you some political people who are privately wrestling with this and struggling with this, but we don't have political options that do. So how do we raise those voices? How do we become uh, perhaps a third way in our political world, raising up, in fact, the lives of those who are most vulnerable? I'm glad so many here feel politically homeless. <laughs> That's a hopeful sign. Hands. Don't be shy. You know, I think here in Mobile, maybe throughout the United States, there are a lot of churches who work hard to address the needs of the marginal. Uh -huh. uh, there are a ton of food pantries there are people who offer childcare. Mm -hmm. There are people who donate. Our Catholic charities do a fabulous job with immigration. And I have visited a lot of these churches. Mm -hmm. But it feels like our churches have often become rotary clubs. They seem to do, many churches seem to do the work of Jesus but they, we seem to be afraid to say that. We feel like we're the Sierra Club or the Rotary. We're not spiritual institutions. And it seems to me that we've lost, even though we may do the right thing, we've lost our power mm -hmm. when we don't do it, as you have referenced Okay. In the name of Jesus. Let me try and, to speak to that. And can you speak to that? I'll try to. Um, I am saying, as you hear me say, uh, that, you know, in a crisis like this, we are, we are literally always a day or two away 
from literally a constitutional crisis in this country. A day or two away every day. It's also a moral crisis. It's a faith crisis. And it's not clear where people are speaking to that crisis in the name of Jesus. But to speak in that name is more than taking care of people. Dom Elder Kammer, an archbishop from Brazil that I, that I love, said, when I feed the hungry, they call me a saint. When I ask why they're hungry, they call me a communist. And so speaking the name of Jesus is speaking the truth about why we are where we are. I don't think that, I forget his name, what's his name, in the White House. I think he's a symptom. I don't think he's the problem. He's a symptom of what's been unraveling for a long time. Uh, I'll say more about this tomorrow in our meeting with with the community leaders. Um, Abraham Lincoln once said that leaders should call forth are better angels, right? Remember his first inaugural? We were all there for that, his first inaugural. Uh, Call forth our better angels. But now we have political leadership invoking our worst demons. And they're right beneath the surface. And the the jack-in-the-box is out. And Jack isn't going back. The fight between better angels and demons is our political battle. So how do we do that? How do we speak to that? And, uh, you know, I love Catholic Charities. You mentioned uh, I'm very close to a lot of those organizations and groups. But this is a matter of, of uh, uh, asking questions. We'll talk about this t- tomorrow. Asking the questions that Jesus either asked or was prompted. Questions like Pontius Pilate, who we read about in the Creed this morning, possibly, in response to Jesus, he said, no, what is truth? That's what they always want to do. What is truth? Jesus said, who is my neighbor? We'll deal with that tomorrow. The answer to that question goes right to the heart of immigration policy, refugees, all the rest. Who is my neighbor? Or Jesus saying, who, who is the greatest? Here's what I mean by leadership. What do you mean? These questions Asked by Jesus or prompted by Jesus are the ones we have to look at again in light of where we are now. But I feel a whole new generation, some of whom don't get into places like this or don't want to come, but I meet meet them on on the road all the time, uh, and they're interested in these questions. So how do we ask what it means to speak the name? Not speak in the name in ways that are triumphalistic or self-centered or lacking in humility, but not being afraid to say, as Peter and John did, this is what we're doing because of all we've seen and heard. We cannot speak. We cannot not speak in his name. Oprah's waiting. You know, on many occasions, people do, uh, you know, invoke the name of Jesus uh, in many ways to justify, you know, their opinion being uh, the right one. Yeah. And you can have people with, uh, uh, taking different uh, sides on an issue and each uh, invoking that name to yeah. the right. And how do we discern uh, 
where God would have us uh, uh, go in those situations? Thank you. Great question. Thank you. At lunch today, I always like it when um, uh, young uh, people out of a Protestant tradition, uh, I can tell they're listening to my friend Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan Catholic. Uh, and Richard recently said, Richard Rohr, uh, Center for Action Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, dear friend uh, for many years. Richard says, you know, to say that you are, to, to be supportive of racism and misogyny and lying and authoritarian leadership, but then say, but Jesus is my Lord and Savior, he said, is silly. It's silly. Now, in response to this book, I'm going to get that question all the time. So here's my answer. You can either say Jesus is not relevant to our public life. No reason to have the conversation. Not relevant. Very few Christians can say that, if you're a Christian. Or you can say, Jesus didn't speak to any of these questions. That won't get you very far either. Or you can say, I agree that what Jesus said and did and, and, and tells us to do is very relevant, but I disagree with your interpretation of this in regard to immigration. I'll say, thank you, let's talk. Let's have that conversation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the churches were having that conversation? What does what Jesus said about the stranger? Who did he mean by the stranger? What does that mean for our complicated immigration debate and policy? Let's have that talk. Wouldn't you love that to be the talk? Not just, we don't talk about those things here, but he's my savior and Lord. That really is silly. Jesus says, don't call me Lord. Don't call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say. Do I have it all right after 70 years? No, I'll tell you, I don't. I keep working on it. Bono was once asked if he's a practicing Christian. (laughs) I love his answer. He says, yeah, I keep practicing and practicing and practicing. Hope I get there someday. Well, I'm I'm, I'm like Bono, a practicing Christian. So I keep trying to practice at this stuff. But let's have that conversation. You can't say he's not relevant. You can't say he's not authoritative or he's not your Savior and Lord. When the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, everyone around them knew that meant Caesar was not. That was taken as a political statement. All around the early church, that's what they were saying and everyone knew it. If he's Lord... Now, we, the things we owe, owe to Caesar, that's fine. But one of the chapters is, what do we owe to Caesar? And what do we owe to God? And Jesus made clear which has the higher authority for us. So let's have that conversation. I'd love to have that conversation. But right now, it's often so politicized that people are, put it this way, I, I'll say this carefully. 
Politics is trumping our theology. And theology has to trump our politics. How do we get to that place? I've been struggling to come up with the right words, but I think that touches it. I think our religion is kind of trumping our spirituality Mm. or trumping our connection with the Jesus that you're Mm -hmm. describing. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm trying to, you know, kind of break out of my my religion in order to get in touch with uh, the Jesus the authentic Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think you're on. You're leading me in that direction. Our religious systems, yes, can all often keep us away from Jesus. I love. I love. Um, Francis has a. I call it his theology of dirty shoes. Pope Francis loves to see. He, when he was in Argentina, he talked to his priests, and he'd always, I'm told by people very close to him, he'd always in the conversation look at their shoes. If their shoes weren't dirty or muddy, he didn't trust they were really out where they needed to be with the people. He wanted dirty shoes priests. Priests were getting mud on their shoes. Then he knew they were trying to do what Jesus did. And our religious systems are often a big part of the problem. Um, we just had this so painful thing, as you all know, in Pennsylvania. And uh, the problem is indeed perpetrators, indeed, and those who covered for them, indeed. But the problem there, which relates to what happened to those 300 young people, is, is systems of patriarchy in our religious institutions across the board. And we have to deal with that. And the Jesus who treated women so differently than the patriarchies of his time. And, and women notice that. And they notice our patriarchal systems. How do we how do we get to, and that's why all of the polarization um, is, is so powerful. These, these are systems and structures and habitual behaviors and cultures, not just individual acts. How do we see these things, as you are pointing to so rightly, as systemic? And how do we see Jesus who, you know, he comes in, to Jerusalem on this donkey <laughs> on Palm Sunday. And he's literally making a statement about this kingdom. He's riding on a humble donkey. And that's in the east gate of Jerusalem. In the west gate at the same time, here is the Roman governor coming in with chariots and horses. Two symbols of power coming in at the same time in the city for Passover. Where does he go? To the temple. Overturns tables 
in the place that was the system of religious and political power and authority, overturning tables. And for that, among many other things, he's crucified. So how does he overturn the tables of our religious systems, not just our economic and political ones? And how do people who who feel on the margins, on the edges, uh, be they the poor, racial minorities, women in our churches, how, how do they feel the safe space in our institutions for their lives and their voices? That's what Jesus would be pushing and calling us to. And that first community, it was so, it was so radical. And that, you know, the Galatians text that we all know in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free, all one in Christ. That text goes right to the heart of the three most oppressive factors in human history, race, class, gender. And that text was used as a baptismal formula, that text, in all the early baptisms in the early church. What they were saying was, this is a new community. Martin Luther King called it the beloved community. This is a new community, and and what we're doing here is we're breaking down those oppressive factors. We're breaking them down. We don't want to submit to those. We want to transform those. We want to change those divisive factors of race and gender and class, and that's what we're about. And so if you want to come into a community that's doing that, Come on in. If you don't, go somewhere else. Please go somewhere else. We don't want to just reproduce those divisions in the name of religion. We don't want to do that and fit in. So it was a baptismal formula in the early church. So this is something that could be, if, if, if we use this moment of crisis to help us get back to a serious conversation about what Jesus said and what he meant and how it might apply to our situation right now, this could be a great moment of opportunity as well as danger. Thank you so much, Mr. Wallace. Thank all of you for your good questions. We're going to have a a closing prayer, and after the prayer, you're invited to a reception just next door here in McGowan Hall, and there are books for sale there, so certainly you're welcome to purchase those. Uh, But let's close with with 